offer for you the uh, uh, first message, the split sermon. This one is entitled, Who are the Nicolai Isaacs? That's a hard word to say. I don't know. All right. Would you want to be a part of a group that God overtly declares that he hates? Would you want to hold their doctrines or practice their words? Would you want to so offend the Lord and Master of the universe? To me, that sounds a little bit more than risky. But there is such a group. They're called the Nicolaitans. Uh, mentioned explicitly only twice in Scripture, both in the second chapter of Revelation during the address of the seven churches, who did, exact, who did exactly that. My message today, which I planned several months ago, but because of the COVID and other things, the Bible study didn't lie, I've had to postpone. It actually supplements our Bible study on Ephesians. For the church of Ephesians, the church at Ephesus is praised for hating the deeds of the Nicolaitans, whereas the church at Pergamos is uh, severely chastised for some that hold the doctrines of the Nicolaitans. Okay, so this is actually a supplement to our Bible study that we have been doing. Turn with me to Revelation 2, and we'll read verses uh, 1 through 7, and then we'll look at Revelation 2, verses 12 to 17. All right, first one. This is set for the church of, at Ephesus. To the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lamps then. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil, and that you have tested those that say they are apostles and are not, and have found them to be liars. And you have preserved and have patience and have labored for my name's sake, and have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. That's the greatest uh, sin that they leveled against the um, church at Ephesus. Remember, therefore, from whence you have fallen. Repent and do the first work, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Notice the praise for the Ephesus is that they hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. Okay? Remember that. Okay? Then let's skip down, drop down to verse 12, and we'll read about what he says for the church of Pergamos. And to the angel of the church at Pergamos write, These things says he who has a sharp two-edged sword. I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast to my name, and did not deny my faith even in the day in which Antiochus um, was my faithful mar martyr, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. Because you have there those who hold a doctrine of Balaam. By the way, if you don't know about the doctrine of Balaam, Balaam actually prostituted the works of God uh, and the visions of the prophecies for money, for, for profit. Uh, 
who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols, commit sexual immorality. Thus you have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which things I hate. Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with a sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone, and on that stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. So, what could be so bad about the doctrines and the works of the Nicolaitans that God would declare that he hates them? That's a pretty strong statement, wouldn't you say? Believe it or not, the doctrines of the Nicolaitans is still very much widespread in the Sunday-keeping churches of today and hence deserves our consideration. Who were they, historically? Very little is known about the Nicolaitans other than that they were one of the many heretical sects that played the churches of Ephesus and at Pergamum, according to Revelation 2, 6, and 15, which we just read. They seem to have originated in the area around Antioch. Irenaeus identifies them as possibly as followers of Nicholas, one of the seven chosen deacons as men who led lives of unrestrained indulgence, according to Clement. However, there is no evidence that Deacon Nicholas of Acts 6-5 ever became apostate or founded a deviant sect, although that seems to be the gist of the speculation. Irenaeus also relates them to Gnosticism and declares that they are, they have the doctrine of Balaam, prostituting God-given gifts for the spirit and, uh, of the spirit for the pleasure of the flesh. The works of the Nicolaitans were were physical and spiritual fornication, which also included the doctrines of Balaam as well as the doctrines and sun worship of the Babylonian mystery religion. The name Nicolaitans is derived from the Greek word Nicolaus, a compound of the word Nikos and Laos, and the word Nikos is a Greek word that means to conquer or to subdue. The word laos, from which we get the word laity today, is the Greek word for the people. So putting the two, word, two pieces together, the term Nicolaitans literally means to conquer the people. That's what it means, to conquer the people. In a church setting, this meaning ought to be obvious. Other commentators uh, believe that the Nicolaitans were not called from any one man, but from the Greek word Nicola, not the cough drop, uh, meaning let us eat as it often encouraged each other to eat things that were sacrificed to idols. Now the doctrine of the Nicolaitans was that of a religious hierarchy, a religious hierarchy who claimed spiritual authority over those who were merely the laity. Indeed, the entire top-down church administration structure, the Catholic, as well as many of their daughter churches, owes its survival to maintaining what the Nicolaitans um, taught and promoted. Ironically, for a group that believed in lawlessness, 
and they did. A group that believed in loneliness, they argued that the church must maintain a strict hierarchy of control over the laity and that the hierarchy must be respected within the church. Ranks and levels were created expressly to maintain the uh, power so that those considered part of the lowest level of the church, the laity or the membership, can be exploited at will. The whole system feeds on competition and strife among those who consider themselves believers in Jesus, sowing confusion and discard among the brethren, contrary to what the teachings of Jesus and the apostles said. The doctrine of the Nicolaitans appeared to be a form of antinomianism, which makes the uh, fatal mistake of believing that man can freely participate in sin, in sin because the law of God is no longer binding. It held this belief in, quote, the gratuitous reckoning of righteousness, unquote, but suppose that it was a mere intellect, but suppose that a mere intellectual belief in the truth had a saving power. They taught the community of wives, meaning that all wives were held in common or shared. Listen, they're sharing and then they're sharing. And that's a little bit too far. Um, that adultery and fornication were things indifferent, and that eating meats offered to idols was quite lawful. Further, they regularly compromised Christian ceremonies with several pagan rites. Nicolaitans of the second century seem to have continued this and extended the views of the first century adherents, uh, holding the, to the freedom of the flesh and sin and teaching that the deeds of the flesh had no effect upon the health of the immortal soul and consequently no relationship to salvation. Any of this sound familiar? Should is the doctrines of the, of the most, of common Sunday Sunday keeping churches today. Uh, we see this reincarnation of these ideas expressed in mainstream uh, Christianity. Today, in mainstream Christianity, the doctrine is now largely taught that the gospel of Christ has made the God's law of no effect. That by believing alone, we are released from the necessary, from the necessity of being doers of the word. This is the Sunday keeper's belief that the law was, quote, nailed to the cross and has no part in salvation, arguing that his grace alone is sufficient to save us. Their doctrine is actually a perversion of Paul's teaching as found in Ephesians 2, where he notes that grace, the unmerited favor extended us through the law of God, that saves us as opposed to works. Paul was trying to make the point that we cannot earn our salvation by doing good works, but rather that it is salvation is a gift of love from God. And you don't earn gifts. You don't earn gifts. The Nicolaitans have taken the words of Paul and twisted them so severely that they transform grace into a license to sin. While Paul was asserting that although we are saved by grace, we are committed to good works because of the grace that works within us. Let's look at Paul's statement to the Ephesians directly. This is Ephesians 2, verses 4 through 10. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. 
and raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Jesus Christ, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Jesus Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are created... We are his workmanship, created in Jesus Christ for good works, and which, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Granted, Paul's mind was very complex, with a thousand Pharisaic thoughts filtered through every statement that he made. It's no wonder that Peter, James, and John were often found doing damage control, cleaning up after Paul barrels through a region like a tornado. Uh, indeed, in the final verses of his second epistle, Peter admits that some of Paul's writing are obtuse, quote, hard to understand, and that he may actually be referring to the Nicolaitans when he described untaught and unstable people who twist the truth to their own destruction. Look at Second Peter 3, 14 to 16. Therefore, beloved, look forward to these things. Be diligent to be found by him in peace without spot and blameless and consider that the long-suffering of our uh, Lord is salvation as also, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, has written you. But uh, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of things in which you are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist in their own de uh, destruction. And they do also rest, as they do also the rest of the scriptures. So, uh, Paul is difficult to understand because he's uh, this well-educated, well-learned Pharisee and his, his language gets convoluted at times. Uh, but this is a warning from Peter to uh, be careful about people who try to wrest this, uh, a new meaning out of the, the scriptures. In logic, we call such an attack on a distorted presentation of one position a fallacy known as the straw man. This is the same doctrine this is the same doctrine of the Nicolaitans which Christ so uh, unsparingly condemned in the book of Revelation. They have taken Paul's teaching and perverted them into a doctrine of demons, into a license to sin. A second part of the doctrine of the Nicolaitans is that they embrace anonymalism, which comes from the Greek uh, meaning lawlessness. In Christian theology, it is a pejorative, a term, a put down for the teaching that Christians are under no obligation to obey the laws of ethics or social morality. And anomalism may be viewed as the popular opposite of legalism, the no notion that obedience to a strict law of strict code of religious laws is necessary for salvation. And it is a rejection for the need of law. In this sense, these two ideas, these two philosophies, anonymous and legalism are both considered errant extremes. Again, the Nicolaitans wrest a meaning from Paul's teaching that he did not intend. In Galatians 2, 4, Paul refers to our freedom, liberty in King James Version, in Christ. Galatians 2, version 4, I'm reading here from the CEV, the Contemporary English Version. 
We went there because of those who pretended to be followers and had sneaked in among us as spies. They had come to take away the freedom that Jesus Christ had given us, and they were trying to make us their slaves. The Nicolaitans uh, interpreted freedom or liberty as simply lawlessness. Not real freedom, but lawlessness giving them the license to disobey the laws which would restrict their lascivious licentious behavior. Clearly, they did not wish to obey the law so they could continue to indulge in the sins of the flesh. Hence, they created the doctrine that grace alone is sufficient for salvation and that works were not necessary. Paul repeatedly rails against such a concept as illustrated in, uh, say, Romans 6, 15. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? Certainly not. In contrast, James, as Curtis explored during his message on the epistle, asserts that our good works justify our faith before men after salvation and that we are to obey the law of God, that faith without works is dead. This is James 2, uh, 14 through 26, especially verses 20 and 26. The doctrine of universal absolute grace, that's what it is, the doctrine of universal absolute grace, the forgiveness of sins and atonement by faith in Jesus Christ alone, led them to ask questions of consequence. Questions of consequence. If God forgives sin by grace alone, what exactly is the disadvantage of sinning or the reward of obedience? By rejecting law, they reject the touchstone for sin giving them carte blanche for their activities. When Jesus referred to those who practice lawlessness in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 7, verse 23, he may have well had in mind the Nicolaitans. Today, this freedom has been extended to the idea that we are free to worship in any way that we want, on any day we want, with any rituals we want, with any practices we want. It <clears throat> One of our uh, praise and worship songs, uh, entitled God With Us, has a great line in it. We are free in ways that we never should be. I love that line. It's a very powerful line. It manifests itself in what is called religious syncretism. That's a modern term for it. Religious syncretism. It's the blending of several religious practices into a new system tailored to the needs and the taste of the practitioners. It allows non-denominational community churches. You've seen those. They're around us everywhere. Non-denominational community churches to assimilate beliefs and practices into some sort of a religious amalgam that can satiate the majority of the congregation who feel this need for some kind of spiritual experience but are not serious enough to find out how God wants to be worshipped. For truly, he is not happy with just any kind of worship. Turn to Deuteronomy 12, verses 29 to 32. When the Lord your God cuts off from before you the nations which you go to, uh, dispossessed and you displace them and dwell in their land take heed to yourself that you are not ensnared to follow them after they are destroyed from before you and that you do not inquire after their gods saying how did these nations serve their gods I will do likewise 
I will also do likewise. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. That's a direct command. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. For every abomination to the Lord which he hates, they have done to their God. For they even burn their sons and daughters in the fire to uh, their gods. This is a, a reference to Moloch worship. If you've ever seen pictures of that beast, it's a great iron god with a fire in the belly, and they throw living children into his mouth and they roast to burn up. Whatever I command you, be careful to observe it. You shall not add to it nor take away from it. But such worship service, uh, such worship does not require foreign entities to contaminate us. As we can become quite uh, vile well enough on our own. Second uh, Timothy three. Second Timothy three, verses one through five. But know this: that in the last days perilous times will come, for men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, uh, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanders, um, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, and from such people turn away. It is an insult. It is an insult to God to worship him with the trappings of worship to other gods. Like Ken says you, in one of his examples, you want to celebrate your wife's birthday on the birthday of one of your ex-lovers. Okay, that's, that's, that's insulting. Okay, it is an insult to God to worship him with a trapping to other God, including Christmas trees, wreaths, holly, tinsel, and blinking light, with Easter eggs, rabbits, sunrise services, hot cross buns, with icons such as clean and bloody crosses and statues to saints, with prostration and incense designed for other gods, with jack-o'-lanterns, bonfires, trick-or-treat and costumes, with maypoles and erotic dancing, and with sun worship services linked to the solstices and the equinoxes. Indeed, it is an insult to God to try to sanctify the profane by blending it with the sacred. I'll say that again. It is an insult to God to try to sanctify the profane by blending it with the sacred. But such is precisely what many of the community churches today are doing. Not only do they hold non-denominational Christians views, which amount to a little more than some vague, watered-down, touchy-feely spiritualization of a creator and messiah, but some have also interwoven into their worship services Eastern concepts, such as transcendental meditation, transmigration of an immortal soul, mystical healing, Trances and deem quests aided by psychedelic drugs. Some have gone so far to hallow sorcery, white witchcraft, non-heterosexual relationships. They have become social clubs with an ecumenical focus. They have become social clubs with an ecumenical focus. This is not the worship sanctioned by scripture or accepted by God. Matthew 15, 7 and 9. Hypocrites! Well did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, These people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. 
and in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Instead of assimilating pagan practices, icons, doctrines, Lord Jehovah commands us to utterly destroy such foreign shrines. Deuteronomy 12, verses 1 through 4. These are the statutes and judgments which you shall... Uh, which you shall be careful to observe in the land which the Lord God your fathers has given you to possess all the days that you live on the earth. You shall utterly destroy all the places where the nations with which you dispossess serve their gods, on the mountaintop, on the hill, under every green tree, and you shall uh, destroy their altars, break their sacred pillar, burn their wooden images with fire. You shall cut down the carved images of their gods and destroy the names from that, that place. You shall not worship the Lord your God with such things. This syncretism that we see today is a violation of the first two commandments of our very jealous God. Deuteronomy 6, verses 13 through 15. You shall fear the Lord your God and serve him and shall take oaths in his name. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the people who are all around you. For the Lord your God is a jealous God among you, lest the anger of the Lord your God be aroused against you and destroy you from the face of the earth. This religious syncretism is an affront to God. It provokes him to anger. Look at Jeremiah uh, 25, 6 and 7. Do not go after other gods who serve them and who worship them. Do not provoke me to anger with the works of your hand, and I will not harm you. Yet you have not listened to me, says the Lord, that you might provoke me to anger with the works of your hand to your own hurt. By trying to do, be all things to all people, these modern groups prostitute spirituality, the doctrine of Balaam, to the opiate of the masses, having an assembly resembling worship, but denying the power thereof. As the, late as, the, as the late 19th and early 20th century British philosopher, critic, and lay theologian Chesterton said, when people stop believing in God, they don't believe in nothing. They believe anything. Which is exactly what the religious synchronism poses to provide. The universal assimilation of beliefs, which Catholicism begun, uh, has uh, become full circle with this modern movement. But it's only a thin disguise for the works and the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Have you gotten a better idea of what these people are? They're your fellow Sunday keeping Christians. They are the ancestors of modern modern-day Sunday keepers who advocate a doctrine of absolute grace and maintain a strict hierarchy over the laity. It is no wonder that Paul and Barnabas were pulling their hair out in frustration over trying to deal with such apostasy. Acts 14, uh, 14 through 16. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard this, they tore their clothes and they ran in, in among the multitude crying out and saying, Men! Why are you doing these things? We also are men with the same nature as you and preach to you that you should turn from these useless things to the living God who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and all things that are in them, who in bygone generations allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. It seems that for some reason, human beings want a God that they can see 
instead of the, uh, an infinite God that we know, which is beyond form. It has been a problem for the prophets of God from the beginning. Consider Moses' experience in mourning. This goes back to Exodus 34, verses 12 through 17. Take heed to yourself, lest you make a covenant with, a covenant and an agreement, by the way, uh, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land where you are going, lest it be a snare in your midst. But you shall destroy their altar, break their sacred pillar, cut down their wooden images, for you shall worship no other god. For the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and they play the harlot with their gods, and make a sacrifice to the gods, and one of them invites you, and, and, and you eat of his sacrifice, and you take, your, the, take of his daughters for your sons, and his daughters play the harlot with their gods, and make your sons play the harlot with their gods, you shall make no molded gods for yourself. Don't, don't succumb to the doctrines and the works of the modern Nicolae 18s and the Sunday-keeping churches, for they are the doctrines of demons. Don't become the object of God's hatred. Rather, in this one point, be like the Ephesians we had just studied. I'll switch.